Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to check out part two. Well, this is episode two. We're still in part one of Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. But before jumping into it, go check out part one. What are you doing here, episode one? Uh, if you know, if you are here and you haven't done the following things, do them. Like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might love it. You can help me out by doing all those things. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or PayPal. You can find me on other platforms if you'd like to follow me on other platforms. That'd be so fun. Wouldn't it be so fun? And yeah, let's jump right into chapter 10 of Thomas Hobbes's Leviathan. And we're going to cover this all the way to the end of part one. Steel's steel. Steel. Still dealing with the question of man, of humans, and what they are like. What makes us tick before, in part two, jumping into the question of what a commonwealth is or what Leviathan is, what are its properties, and how do humans engage within it? So here we are with chapter 10, titled of Power, Worth, Dignity, Honor, and Worthiness. Wow, aren't these all good things? Don't you want to have power, worth, dignity, honor, and worthiness? Wouldn't that be amazing? So power is our propensity to obtain some future apparent good. And the highest power comes from cooperation, like with many servants or friends. Uh, I thought I just thought it was funny. He was like, yeah, you know, like if you hire a bunch of servants, you're going to have power. Like, is it? You're going to have power or you already have power if you're doing that uh, in any case. But his point is to say that we have the most power when we are working together. If we just work on our own, we will not do very well. You know, we, but, you know, in America, in, you know, Hollywood, we love stories of that individual, that rugged man individual, overcoming all adversity, overcoming all government oppression, to come out on top and to demonstrate that the individual is the most powerful entity on the planet. For Hobbes, that's, that's not the case. When we get to Locke, next, the next person I'll cover that's going to be a little bit of the case. That is, there seems to be a little bit more room to acknowledge the place of the individual. There's a bit of that here. But for Hobbes, really, it's about working together. And we haven't yet talked about the state of war and the state of nature. That'll come later. Super important. That'll come later. But in any case, for Hobbes, we work best when we work together. If any one of our ancestors at any point had said, hey, y'all, I don't like this community. I'm going to go live alone in the woods. You wouldn't be listening to this right now. I wouldn't be speaking to you right now. That wouldn't be happening. They would not have lasted very long. I mean, we're humans. We can't even see in the dark. Like, we'd be screwed if we were just left on our own. We don't have, we don't have fur and talons and fangs. Like, we, we need to work together. Like, no human stands a chance against three or four other humans at, at one time. So, and it's like, it's just so obvious that that's the case. Uh, I don't know, maybe there's a few humans out there who could. But you add a few more and then they're done. So whatever, what's the point of being a big, strong, burly dude in the name of self-defense? <laughs> those, those people are so big and strong. So power, though, can assume many forms, like riches, for example. Dynasties. You know, you can, you can have monetary power, monetary sway. You can also just come from royalty. You could have political power. You can be popular. That's a kind of power. I mean, I tell you to subscribe every time. 
I maybe this is just me seeking my own popularity power. You can have knowledge. That that brings a kind of power. You could like knowledge of crafting, manufacturing. There's power to be had in that. So the value of others is determined by need for them by others. That's a little bit scary, right? <laughs> I mean, for for uh, Hobbes to say, I mean, that's what that says is that humans are just a means to an end. Like the value of someone is for me to determine the value of another human is for me to look at them and say, hmm, what will that thing get me? What 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 need will that human satisfy? Hmm, that's a scary thought. But that's, that's what he thinks. So to be valued is therefore to be honored. And unvalued is then to be dishonored for Hobbes. So to respect someone, to love them, to fear them is an ex example. Like, I fear someone with power in that is a kind of demonstration of honor uh, for Hobbes. And so these and many others are examples of natural signs of honor, where in a commonwealth, people may agree upon other ways to honor, like, to, for example, to bow or someone who's attained a certain political power. But in the natural world, we honor those people or, you know, in the animal kingdom, if we can bestow, which, uh, you know, Hobbes just bestows human qualities upon animals, which he said you shouldn't do before, remember? Remember, Hobbes, we caught you here. Uh, but in any case, in the animal kingdom or among pre-state humans, you would honor the strongest, which is like, what? Because no strong human stands any chance against more than one less strong human. But in any case, we like apparently really glorify strength for Hobbes, at least in the natural world. When we enter into a society, we can honor people in other ways as well, like having for those people who've held political power, which isn't found in nature. So in the, in the ways we demonstrate that, like I just said, like we can bow to them, we, we vote for them, we do other things as a sign of honoring them. We have holidays after them or whatever. So before commonwealths, People likely didn't view themselves as honorable or dishonorable. They just did things for themselves, apparently. Like, what exactly he means by a commonwealth is, is hard to say. Like, is he talking about early state formations here? Is he talking only about, uh, I don't know, other kinds of what I will just call more advanced or developed states with more people? By advanced and developed, I mean there's just more people. I don't know at one point... It stops being like just a community and becomes a commonwealth or a state for Hobbes. But in any case, apparently before commonwealths, whenever that started for him, people didn't really honor each other. They just, they just cared for themselves. So titles and their accompanying dress are honorable, but they are only permissible within a commonwealth of people that acknowledge them and respect them. If I wear a certain kind of dress... In my community, in my, you know, in my country, and I go somewhere else, chances are those people will have no idea what the colors and dress and what my title means. They'll just be like, who are you? Who cares? Even if I was like a king in another country, for example. But it's interesting here how he says that before commonwealths, people just did things for themselves. Because when we get to Locke, we find a very different understanding of pre-state life 
or what we call the state of nature. Where for Locke, he says that people actually work together in a state of nature. Whereas for Hobbes, they, a state of nature is like perpetual war. Everyone's just for themselves, tooth and nail, blood everywhere, like absolute violence and chaos. You had a very different idea with Locke, which I find super interesting. And that puts us here into chapter 11 of the difference of manners. By manners here, he's referring to our disposition towards and from others in a common setting, in a commonwealth, in which it is agreed upon what proper conduct is. If we are dealing with just pre-commonwealth life, you can't have manners or ways of acting in the world because we haven't agreed upon anything. We're all just fighting for ourselves, apparently. So he then immediately says that all people aspire to elevate their power. And once they've maximized it, they turn to sensual pleasure or like lasting legacy, which is like, there's so much to unpack here. How, How do you know that people do not actually pursue sensual pleasure or lasting legacy first? Like this is clearly motivated by uh, his own understanding of that largely like biblically inspired that you must renounce sensual pleasure, bodily pleasure in favor of, um, I don't know, higher ecclesiastical truth and knowledge, whatever. Uh, but apparently we first strive to gain power. And once we've attained it, then we can set our sights on all this stuff that doesn't matter. Or there's, there's a really, you know, in, in the Republic, right at the beginning of the Republic, when Socrates is talking to, is it, I don't think it's Polymarchus. I think it's the guy before Polymarchus. But in any case, this he's talking to this Cephalon or something, whatever. He's Socrates is talking to uh, an elderly man and the elderly man is like, oh yeah, you know, I just care about the passions now. I don't, I, you know, I'm, I'm more interested in satisfying bodily pleasure I don't really want to think about things anymore because I'm old. Because with time, your drive for intellectual knowledge fades and you become you become more idle and tranquil. You just want to like sit in baths all day. And, and Socrates is like, is that really, is that like a, a fundamental truth of humanity that you stop wanting to use your mind? Or is that just because you're rich and you're like, you just, you know, you're, you're allowed to enjoy this life of leisure now didn't it shuts the guy up but it just made me think of that so to harm someone is to make oneself susceptible to retaliation fear of oppression then encourages people to seek the help of states so here he's referring to that pre-state life or out of state life where if you do something to somebody chances are they're going to want to retaliate and fear of oppression encourages people to find solace or to take shelter among people or among within a state that will protect them. So in all of this, it's important to remember that humans always look for causes behind events and ways to address those causes. So when we are unable to explain something, we may turn to religion and God as first cause of something. If I am in nature or I look at the history of uh, human life, before and another difficulty here and this will confront Locke as well they, they aren't aware that it was even a difficulty is that they're they make all of these assumptions about non-state life life outside of commonwealths life outside of states 
when we have no idea what these people were like. We have no idea. We're starting to learn more, you know. We, uh, archaeological work has started to really problematize the idea that humans just kind of spontaneously started to erect states about 10,000 years ago. We're, we're starting to really push back on that idea and to have a more a broader understanding of the history of human states. But for the most part, we don't know how people acted, how people in, interacted with one another before what we know to be states. Like We have no idea. Yet we're like Hobbes and Locke and stuff. Not, I mean, they're just speculating and they, they think they're right. But like we at the end of the day, we have no clue. And we might never know. We will likely never know. But we are the humans or we are humans. And so we look for causes behind events and we try to predict consequences. And for him, it then makes sense for Hobbes. It then makes sense that humans will pursue states because it is within a state that humans are going to be protected from the harms that they perceive to be out there outside of the state. Of course, well, not of course. Foucault makes an interesting point later, later, few centuries, about three centuries later, three and a half centuries later, where Foucault is like, but states are pretty violent though, right? I mean, people in states, like they still hurt each other and states go to war with one another. How do you make sense of all of that? But, you know, just putting it out there. For all we know, we've always had states and we're no different than we were 15, 20,000 years ago. We just like to sell ourselves these ideas that we've advanced, that we've progressed, that we're the best we've ever been. For all we know, people 8,000 years ago were saying the exact same thing. And then people 10,000 years ago, years in the future are going to say the exact same thing. Anyways, I'm, I'm ranting. That puts us into chapter 12 of religion. So religion is reserved for humans because we are the creatures that search for causes, right? We search for causes and God is the ultimate cause. That is, God is the thing, whatever it really is. God is the cause that has no cause. That is... God was not produced by anything. If anything produced God, then whatever that is, is God. But nothing produced God. So we create gods to, appears, to appease our fears of the unknown. So in our endless pursuit of knowledge, for Hobbes, we inevitably arrive at the conclusion that there must be a supreme cause. Because we look for a cause behind everything. What, you know, what made us, our parents, what made them, their parents, so on and so on and so on. We must find like an original point. What made the universe? Well, it must have been something created the universe, and that must be God. God is the other word, and like, I mean, this is, I think these are super interesting conversations uh, or ideas, like, even though we'll never have the answer. I'm going to say, I'm a, I'll be our prophet for a moment. We're never going to know. We're never going to know how big the universe is. We're never going to know what infinity is. We're never going to know that if there's a God, we will never know. Sorry to be so bleak. Uh, <laughs> unless we live for infinite amount of time, which I don't think we will. I don't think, <laughs> I don't think we're going to find the answer to that. In any case, don't mean to be so grim and bleak. Uh, but it's still, it's still interesting because we are searching. We are humans. We, we search for causes behind events and we can follow a chain. And as far as our mind is able to take us, we can only arrive at a certain point, and that is like, well, something made it, <laughs> the universe. It came from somewhere. What is that thing? But then what made the, th the thing that made the universe? God is the word we use to end that chain of speculation, which is actually like kind of a, 
a harm done to God, to be like God is the end point of our line of thought, of our line of searching for causes behind events. When like, if there really was a God, there would be no end. At least that's one idea. There's, you know, it could be that God is, is, you know, is the infinite itself. It is the very process of searching for causes behind events. I have no idea. No one, no one will know. But in any case, for Hobbes, we create gods to appease our fears of the unknown. Unknown. So in our endless pursuit of knowledge, we inevitably conclude, therefore, as I've said, there must be a supreme cause of that. That is God. So curiosity of the unknown and search for causes permit people to join in union to maximize their efforts in this pursuit of knowledge. Nearly every culture worships some god or gods that act as creators for the entire universe or of certain things, of the moon, of the sun, whatever. There are all of these different, we have all of these different ideas about something that exists beyond us that is responsible for us, responsible for the universe, the world, and so on. So Hobbes divides these into two strands of knowing and, and practice. That is, there's natural and divine, uh, divinely ordained knowledge. Natural knowledge permits us to cooperate while divine words from texts give us laws, codes, etc. Where the natural order of things allows us to engage with one another, whereas divine words from texts give us laws, codes, edicts, precepts, and so on. So before God's written word, he's just talking about the Bible, of course, before God's written word, there were many gods, almost as many as there were animals, trees, humans, passions, etc. And at this time, the people appealed to the gods and their interests to optimize their lives. Like, for example, giving, giving uh, an offering to some god to make the crops grow better or whatever if people did that, whoever did that at some point. So every religion then is open to corruption for Hobbes. I mean, religions are the mediators between ourselves and the divine. We erect temples, churches, synagogues, other, other structures, uh, pagodas, uh, to, to like help us have a relationship with what is not immediately physically present in our world. To help us have a sense of what's beyond it, uh, whatever that might whatever that might look like, and so because of that, there's a, there's a, a monopolization of a relationship with the metaphysical, with the beyond the physical, and so it is always open to a kind of possible corruption. So he, <laughs> however, that's that's more my thought. For him, when religions were like polytheistic. They were more open to corruption. And we get the same thing in like Hegel, where at the end of the phenomenology of spirit, Hegel is just like, yeah, Christianity is the only true revealed religion. It's like the, the absolute pinnacle of religious knowledge because within Christianity, in the figure of Christ, we have both the human and the divine united in one. And it's like, oh my God, did we still read this stuff? But, I mean, there's, there's value to it beyond that. But for him, early religion is open to corruption and disagreement, whereas written monotheistic religions are steady and provide order. Not all the time, of course. I mean, he's not... As can be seen with Roman Catholic Church, because he wasn't a fan of the Roman Catholic Church. 
uh, that was kicked out of England. You know, he's definitely within the Protestant stream of things. Uh, that is like, he thought the Roman Catholic Church and the, and the papacy, papacy were open to corruption because it had gotten bigger than religion ever needed to be. So lots of other cases where uh, there are religious figures uh, where they view themselves as above the law, which disrupts people's faith. Like they're above society. They're above everybody else. Now, this is blasphemous for Hobbes because there's only God is above everyone else. No one is, no one else is really above anyone else. We have uh, certain agreements that some people have power. Some people are honorable. Some people should be uh, respected in certain ways, of course. But the weight and force of the Roman Catholic Church for Hobbes is, is way too much at this time. And so it was, it was open to corruption. And that puts us here into chapter 13 of the natural condition of mankind as concerning their felicity and misery. So the differences between people are minute, between any two people. Uh, even the weakest can harm the, the strongest if they really desired. Like, if the weakest would just use their mind, they could probably hurt or kill the strongest person they wanted. Not advocating it, of course, just Hobbes. The point being that between two humans, the actual differences between us in terms of strength is, is pretty minimal. That is, any one of us, if we get hit in the face first, we're probably going to get knocked down and fall to the ground. We're humans. We aren't, we aren't wolves. Like, we, we aren't meant for fighting. That is, with our own, like, bodies. We create tools to help us fight. But even in admitting, in admitting that, we admit that we create these things that make us all equal. Which I think was the... Was that the slogan for Smith & Wesson, the gun company? I think it was, like, it, they, they've made, like, all humans equal now, like, with their gun or one of their guns. It could be another company, but in any case... The point is that these tools level the playing field, if there are any differences. But even those differences are pretty minute for Hobbes. So no matter what other differences may be observed, we all share drive to accomplish our desires, even if we can't all fulfill them. This is one uniting factor among us all. So these can lead us to act violently towards others. That is, in pursuing what they have. Someone has something I want, I'll take it from them according to Hobbes. Uh, defending what I have, if someone tries to take something from me, I will defend it. Or protecting our image, our glory, our honor. And here we finally arrive at the question of the state of war, where if we are just left to our own devices, that is, we don't live in a society with rules and laws and order, we are going to be living, we live in a state of war, where I'll just take something from someone because I want to, or someone will just take something from me because they want to, and no one will hold them accountable, which for Hobbes is a bad thing. Now in the state of war, there's no laws, there's no justice, because people don't have the natural sense of these things. Whereas for Locke, as you'll see, if you listen to the, the episodes on that, um, his two treatises of government, for Locke, in the state of nature, we are actually, we actually do have an innate sense of justice. We actually don't want to harm others because we are naturally equipped with the ability to reflect and be like, hmm, if I do that to someone, 
Maybe they'll do it to me and I don't want that. So it's best for me to actually maintain order. Like that's the natural state of things is order, not chaos. Whereas for Hobbes, it's chaos. The state of war is pure, unbridled, absolute anarchy. Now within a state of war, it's impossible for, for Hobbes for people to develop culture, art, science, because everyone is opposed to everyone else. You can't actually get together and work this stuff through on yourself, on your own. It's really hard to do anything on our own, let alone like develop a culture or art, music or science. These things come about through cooperation. So there can be no laws nor justice because humans don't have a natural proclivity for these things in nature for Hobbes. Again, unlike Locke, Locke thinks differently. And that puts us here into chapter 14 of the first and second natural laws and of contracts. So the first law, he just kind of mentions briefly, and then he really wants to focus on the second law. The first law is that the right of nature refers to our right to self-preservation and to seek peace, where liberty is the absence of external hindrances or fears that someone's going to come and take our stuff. Liberty is when we are like, oh, I'm safe right now and I can do what I want while being safe, while also not infringing upon anyone else's safety. So the right of nature refers to our right to self-preservation. We have a fundamental right for, uh, for Hobbes, or at least at least one of our fundamental rights, to preserve ourselves and to strive for peace. The second law, and we're like these are the first two, the next chapter we're going to get into more. The second law is the law of nature, by contrast, refers to prohibition to inflict self-harm. So the first law suggests that we strive for self-preservation. Our number one goal is to have peace, is to live in a situation where we are not being under, we are not under threat. The second law is that we may defend ourselves if we are being threatened, if someone, uh, and, and we are disallowed from infringing upon our own, our own peace and our own preservation. It is against natural law to inflict self-harm. So in the state of nature, it follows that everyone has a right to anything, including another's body. Like within the state of nature, you can just do whatever you want. So people also have a right to give up their rights for something else. And this is kind of against, this is kind of against Locke as well, but I won't explain that. So these are established with contracts. Now, if, you know, people are actually able to give up their rights according to, or their own liberty for Hobbes in a contract. Like I can say, oh, you know, I will do this much labor for you and I'll show up at your house every day if you give me this thing. I've kind of given up my own liberty, but I'll get something back for it. And that's okay for Hobbes, but that's only permitted outside of a state of nature where people have advanced a little bit and I'm using the term advanced just very loosely, advanced for Hobbes and arrived at a point when they can actually cooperate. Now, I guess, okay, just briefly, Locke disagrees with this idea because for Locke, uh, you can't willingly give up your liberty. Can't do that. If, if you did, then that you're not, uh, he's like, what are you doing? That's not something you can just do. So people have a right to give up these rights for something else, for Hobbes. Now, by contrast, there are gifts 
that don't expect a counter gift or giving up rights or something or return anything of necessity. So in a state of nature or war, contracts are useless because anyone just does anything. You don't need to have an agreement. You just take whatever you want. Unless there is an overarching authority to guarantee their fulfillment. That is, there is an authority to hold people accountable if they do not meet their end of the bargain or satisfy their end of the bargain. So even in cases where people were forced to enter contracts, like he's talking about situations where, like in, in enslavement, you know, he's, he's totally fine with enslavement. He's got no problem with that. Or I should specify, like in cases where people are enslaved because they were prisoners of war or something like in that case. Yeah, he means it in more of like that setting. I'm not defending it, but I'm pretty sure that he doesn't qualify that. Now, some contracts are invalid, though. And he's clear that there are some rights that people can't give up. That is, you can always, you must always defend yourself from danger. You can't like sign into a contract where you're like, yeah, I'm going to let someone kill me. That doesn't make sense for Hobbes. Uh, you can't accuse yourself of a crime. And we see this echoed in American law and American, the American constitution. Um, and you cannot, uh, your testimonies can't be accepted as true if they're acquired through torture. Like these are things that, you know, that, that you can't just give these things up. These are, these are fundamental to what it means to be human. And that puts us here into chapter 15 of other laws of nature. So there's more, these, you know, these are the first two that is maintaining peace, self-preservation, and also refusing to inflict self-harm. So, you know, willing, willingly uh, accepting torture, giving up testimony. These are examples of self-harm. Uh, refusing to defend oneself from danger. That's an example of self-harm. Accusing oneself of a crime is an example of self-harm. And for Hobbes, that goes against nature. Of course, we know a lot more about this stuff now, uh, but at the time, he, he believed that these were against laws of nature. So yeah, chapter 15, of the other laws of nature. So justice emerges with the introduction of, of contracts and covenants, be, because before then, nothing was considered just or unjust, which is a, a very interesting point, because it implies that justice emerges at least to the European, in this case, uh, justice emerges when there have been introduced certain ways to quantify debt, to quantify contracts and covenants, to make sure that everyone is given what they're owed. But that is only possible when numbers have entered the equation, which haven't always been the case. I mean, we have to thank the uh, the Middle East, like the Ottomans for that. In, or am I lying to you? In... Um, Greek society, like 3,000 years ago. Anyways, at some point, numbers would emerge. Like, we didn't have the number zero forever. And you need that to, to, to deal with a lot of this stuff. And so it's interesting to see how justice, although it's something that a lot of these people from Socrates to Plato to, to Mill and you know everyone in between thought about justice as this kind of pure thing that exists out in nature in the world, Yet at the same time, it depends upon the introduction of a false thing, that is, numbers, of the ability to quantify debt. So it's, it's interesting. 
And this is Foucault's point. I'm just stealing Foucault. And in order for there to be contracts, there must be a higher power to enforce them like commonwealths, like a sovereign, like sovereignty. So before then, everyone has same claim to everything. So different breaches of the law harm people differently. For example, a debt not paid could be forgiven by an individual, whereas a robbery or violent act is injustice or and is injurious, it hurts the entire social body. Which is interesting. Like he's he's leaving room to acknowledge the different like ways different crimes should be treated, not just, you know, one size fits all, where if I refuse to repay someone for a debt that I owe them, that is less injurious to the social body for Hobbes than if I rob a store. Because robbing a store presents a more, I guess, a more drastic threat to the rest of the social body uh, for him. You know, whatever that, whatever that means. So justice can assume two forms for him. There's commutative and distributive justice where commutative justice deals with the contracts, buying and selling, lending, borrowing, etc. And distributive justice is the act of distributing, like of partitioning off to each person what they're owed. So the third law of nature is to respect contracts and covenants. So, so far we have the first law, you, the law of self-preservation, we preserve ourselves, the second law, not to inflict self-harm. The third law is to respect contracts and covenants. But is that of nature? Really? Contracts and covenants by nature. In any case, that's what he thinks. The fourth law states that if we receive benefit from someone, we will show them gratitude. <laughs> okay. The fifth law states that people have a right to cast out those who don't fit in and follow the laws. Okay. Sixth law is that if someone uh, repent and ask forgiveness for a past transgression, they receive it to establish peace. That is, if it's believed that they're actually going to, they believe what they're saying. The seventh law states that any act of revenge, revenge must be guided by effort to make a better peaceful future and not for vain individual uh, redemption, like just for me to uh, act upon a, a, a vengeful drive. Any revenge that I pursue must be with the hope of making the world better. Uh, the eighth law states that uh, no mean or no mean no man by deed, word, countenance, or gesture declare hatred or contempt of another. I mean that's pretty good. Even though he does that of Aristotle a lot, he's breaking his own laws. Hobbes, come on, in nature. That is no, one is, no one is greater than any other. Only God is greater, remember? And this is also, this is, he makes it clear this is against Aristotle and Plato, who believe some people are meant to lead. Like if you read the Republic for, for Plato, they're the philosopher kings that hold the highest position. They use all the examples of like the most skillful bricklayer and artist, like as being signs of the possibility of justice. So in that, in that case, people seem to actually be higher uh, than others. The ninth law is that everyone acknowledge equality among humans. So to live in a society means to give up some liberties. And we're not done with the laws yet, but just, you know, on, on this point. Uh, is it, to live in a society means to give up some liberties, but not all. 
like the right to govern their own bodies. That is, you can't give that up. The right to your own body is like the most fundamental. And this will be uh, true of all the people from Hobbes to Locke, Mill, Kant. Like that is primary. So those that expect some to give up more rights and liberties than, than themselves, they're breaching natural law. So this would break the ninth law, which is that is to acknowledge equality among all humans. I can't tell someone to give up their own bodily rights to the right to their own body, because that would mean that they were not being treated equally. Now he inserts like another point here to say that any judge that adjudicates anyone breaking any any law, these laws or other laws has to be impartial. Otherwise, they're just uh, judging of their own interest, and they are therefore participating in the state of war that people had just escaped from by entering the commonwealth. And that gives us uh, the 10th law, which states that all indivisible things be enjoyed communally. Like, he doesn't give an example on, like, water. I think water might be an example here. Uh, you, you know, everything it should be enjoyed communally, I assume. Of course, some people can own things like property, and that is arbitrarily theirs. This is opposed to natural ownership. And this is also opposed to what John Locke will say, where Locke is going to leave a lot of room for property to be a designator of people's own liberty. For Hobbes, it doesn't seem like that's, that's really the case. He doesn't leave that much room for property. And the 11th law states that people respect and protect those who work towards peace, like judges do, for example. So in a conflict between two people, one can't claim status of judge without granting it also to the other. Like if I get into a fight with someone, I can't be like, I'm the judge now and I, I decide I'm right, like a child would. Can't do that. Judges must be external, they must be impartial, they must be objective, otherwise we devolve back into the state of war. So obviously these laws are esoteric. We, we aren't born with these laws in mind. You have to learn them. And Hobbes knows that. Like he knows that you, you, no one is born with this. The only real law that people are born with is that do unto others as they would have done. Un, you would have them do unto you. You know, the golden rule from, from the Bible and other, and other texts across the, across the globe. Around the globe? Across the globe whatever. So these laws are meant to be to universalize moral judgment and to extend knowledge of good beyond personal appetites and opinions, to move us beyond a state of nature. And that puts us here into chapter 16, the last one we'll cover, uh, at least in this episode, of persons, authors, and things personated. So a person whose words are their own is a natural person, and when they impersonate someone else, they are an artificial person. So when entering a, a contract or a covenant with someone, one of the people may be the author and the other an actor. The author acts according to their will, that is their natural drive, desire, knowledge, whereas actor is adhering to another's will, and that is artificial, like a servant to their lord, for example. If someone's like, yeah, I'm going to work, I could work on your land for you. And eh. one of those people are the, uh, they're acting like as a natural person and one of them as an artificial person. Beyond human interactions, people can stand in for inanimate things like churches, hospitals, 
and, and impersonate them. There can be figureheads, like with a society, like a commonwealth, there can be a ruler or many rulers, like an oligopoly or a demo or like a aristocracy, whatever, where there's a bunch of people who are ruling everyone else and they are standing in for everybody else. All this made possible under civil, gov civil government, where multitude are represented by a ruling authority. So in this, the multitude are made a single person, but they must have control over their ruler. So when people enter a commonwealth, they are essentially agreeing, okay, I'm going to submit to these rules, and that's my duty, that's my obligation. And what I'm doing is I'm kind of giving my identity to this ruler, and I'm becoming like one with them. But that ruler must always like be prepared to accept my, uh, you know, the ultimate power of the people who've given them that, that place within the commonwealth. But yeah, more on that next time when we actually get into part two, dealing with the commonwealth. We're going to deal with the nature of sovereignty, what it looks like, what its rules are, what the role of judges are, etc. And yeah, on that note, uh, if I got anything wrong, let me know. Anything I excluded, let me know. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends. Who knows? They might get a kick out of it. Uh, you, got a, you got a friend that's trouble sleeping. Tell them to put this on. I'm sure it'll knock them out right away. Uh, and yeah, on that note, uh, take care.